This is A Story Already Begun. I'm Paul Santamena. The poet Richard Blanco said, Every story begins inside a story that's already begun by others. Long before we take our first breath, there's a plot underway with characters in a setting we didn't choose, but which were chosen for us. In the basement playroom of my house growing up was a framed reproduction of a New York Times front page dated May 8, 1915. The headline read, Lusitania sunk by submarine, probably a thousand dead. Americans aboard include Vanderbilt and Froman. Washington believes a grave crisis is at hand. As a young kid, I passed by that headline many times a day and almost never noticed it. But if you stood me in front of it and asked, what's this all about? I could dredge up the story. My great-great-uncle Charles Froman had drowned when the Germans torpedoed the ocean liner the Lusitania, killing 1,200 passengers and crew including more than 100 Americans. It precipitated the U.S.'s entry into World War I. Charles Froman was well known enough at the time to make it into the headline. He was a theater producer, famous for bringing Peter Pan to the stage. That was it. It was ancient history. Sure, it was vaguely glamorous to have an ancestor famous at the time perish during a historical event, but it was all very remote, just family lore. During my middle school years in the 1970s, I developed a flair for the dramatic. I'd write skits and put them on in the basement playroom where that New York Times front page hung. I made short films with our Super 8 camera. I produced fake radio news shows with a cassette recorder. None of this was remarkable. I didn't show any particular talent, but I got a lot of encouragement from my parents. I don't remember them saying this explicitly, but what I heard from them was, of course you love this kind of stuff, it's in your blood. Oh, yeah, my great-great-uncle, the man of the theater. Well, it still felt like ancient history. And then came a moment. One weekend, a family friend gave us a tour of the prep school where he taught. It was a lot fancier than the public school I went to. I remember feeling pretty intimidated. But when he opened up some big white double doors and ushered us into the school's theater, I entered a space where I felt I belonged. It seemed both huge and intimate. Contemporary in design, the ceiling curved high above the audience into an inverted cone. The cone was crowned by a skylight that shed a filtered blue light over blue upholstered seats and heavy blue stage curtains. It was a very blue space, also very peaceful, very quiet, and sacred feeling. The experience of being in that theater at that moment, in that light, stuck with me. Not long after, I had another memorable experience, going backstage at a community theater performance of The Mikado. It was exhilarating, the bustle, the costumes, the makeup, the whole urgent enterprise. I don't recall anything about the performance itself, but what I do remember was the thrill of being allowed behind the scenes and into a secret world. So my childhood performances in the basement and my adolescent moments of transcendence in theatrical spaces 
Maybe these did signal some kind of ancestral connection to the theater. It wasn't until high school that I showed any serious interest in the family mythology. And when I did, my mother excavated box after box of ancient letters, scrapbooks, photographs, newspaper clippings, ledgers, and biographies documenting the life and career of Charles Froman and the lives and careers of his two older brothers. I'd never paid much attention to Charles's brothers, even though the middle one was my great-grandfather, Gustav. They were always obscured by Charles's prominence, just shadows in the background. Gustav appeared in old photos wearing an antique bathing suit at the beach or dressed in tweed astride a bicycle. The oldest brother, Daniel, often looked formal and severe in the few photos I saw of him. One of those pictures was pretty intriguing, though. It showed Daniel seated next to Albert Einstein at some kind of formal dinner. As the materials in these boxes brought the more obscure Fromans into the foreground, I began to know them as Gus and Dan. It turns out that Gus was the first to enter the theatrical business, promoting road tours when he was 13 or 14. Dan enjoyed quite a bit of success in his career, building and running what has become the oldest continually operating Broadway theater. Charles, the famous brother, was actually the last to enter the theater business, hired by Gus to work in the box office at a theater in Brooklyn. Students of theater history can find plenty about Charles in various archives around the country, and quite a bit about Dan, too. But there's very little out there about Gus. I've come to realize that Gus's story is mine to explore. And, as Richard Blanco points out, that his story has influenced the plot, the characters, and the setting of my own. But this podcast is not only about my great-grandfather and his influence on me. To paraphrase the writer Robert McFarlane, the life of a single individual is not a perimeter, but an aperture. Gus's life opens up a view onto American life and culture that is vast, spanning the 70 years from the Civil War to the Great Depression and the 3,000 miles between New York and San Francisco. It includes views of remarkable people and extraordinary events, and like the life of America itself, it's shaped in part by prejudice, racism, and capitalism. Gustav Froman was born on November 7, 1854, in Sandusky, Ohio. His parents, German Jews, had both emigrated from Darmstadt in the 1840s but met in America. Henry Froman owned a small cigar factory. Barbara Strauss Froman raised six children, three girls and three boys. The family didn't stay in Sandusky for long. Barbara felt that her sons would have greater opportunities in New York City, so in 1863, she convinced Henry to send Daniel, the oldest, to cousins living on the Lower East Side. Ten-year-old Gus followed his brother to New York in 1864, and the entire family moved a year later. When Gus arrived, Dan was working in the advertising department of the New York Tribune. Gus got a job there as a general office boy. And here's where Gus's life opens up an aperture onto the life of America, because this newspaper where Gus lands his first job, the New York Tribune, was no ordinary paper. Here's historian Adam Max Tuchinsky. It became maybe the most important newspaper in American history, but uh, certainly uh, the most important newspaper in the North before, during, and then even after the Civil War. It's impossible to talk about the Tribune without talking about Horace Greeley, 
the paper's founder and editor. During his time, he was a media superstar. Greeley was eccentric and erratic and had a flair for self-promotion. He was often seen in the streets of New York wearing his trademark white hat and white coat, in striking contrast to the dull black attire favored by his peers. Here's historian and Greeley biographer Mitchell Snay. I always thought that Greeley would have been a great dinner companion. He had a wide range of interests. It's also clear that there was a side to him or people perceived him as as being difficult. Um, And I think one of my favorite quotes, um, and I I think it came from George William Curtis, who described him as a self-made man who worshipped his creator. You know, he would have been a good person to have at dinner, but he would have been talking about himself most of the time. He used his paper as a personal mouthpiece, advocating for progressive reforms like abolition and promoting politicians willing to carry them out like Abraham Lincoln. Greeley created a weekly edition of the New York Tribune, which was eight pages long, and it gained subscribers from all over. You know, by the early 1850s, it had, you know, a quarter of a million subscribers nationally, and each paper would touch about at least 10 readers. You know, for a lot of people who've studied it, you know, they've said kind of, if you want to understand, you know, the, you know, 2 million voters who voted for Lincoln in 1860, you just read the New York Tribune. Greeley had an eye for talent, hiring, editing, and hanging out with writers and intellectuals, including Henry David Thoreau, Henry James Sr., and Mark Twain. The transcendentalist and early feminist Margaret Fuller became the Tribune's literary critic. Karl Marx served as a European correspondent, and Edgar Allan Poe was a poetry contributor. My sense has always been that reading the Tribune in the mid-19th century was similar to people who read the Atlantic and the New Yorker today. Clarence Darrow, the lawyer, um, famous lawyer in the Scopes trial, he defends Leopold in Loeb, um, his, he called the, the Tribune the social and political Bible of his home, that when he grew up, everybody read the Tribune. So, little 10-year-old Gus shows up at this powerhouse of a newspaper in 1864 and establishes himself as an energetic and popular office boy. The journalist Albert Dean Richardson described Gus as the quickest thing I ever saw, just like a young squirrel, all over the place at once, from top to bottom, but so bright and so ready to run everybody's errands that in spite of his occasional mischief, he was a general favorite. Gus would work at the paper for most of the next eight years, His time as a general office boy was brief, though. Within a year or two, he was tapped to work exclusively for the great man himself, becoming Horace Greeley's personal office boy. This was a coveted position, of course, but it had its disadvantages, as Gus describes in a memoir of that period. Whenever Mr. Greeley was not actually engaged in writing, his mind seemed absorbed in reflection. Often he asked me to accompany him on the streetcar from the Tribune office up to the Bible house near Astor Place. He would take a seat by himself at the end of the car at a window and gaze out, but I'm sure in all the trips that we made together he never saw one thing that came within his vision. His eyes were with his thoughts, and they were far away. In his abstraction he forgot I was with him. This meant that I had to pay my own fare, which was a tax on my resources. Whatever the downsides were, Greeley made a huge impression on Gus, who wrote... Practically everything Mr. Greeley ever said to me, 
Everything he ever did in my presence is clearly etched in my mind, which is perhaps the greatest proof I could give of his power and personality. So to understand Gus, we need to know what ideas and beliefs animated Greeley and likely seeped out in the many hours that they spent together. Luckily, Greeley's philosophy is far from obscure. On a personal level, Greeley was an avid follower of the minister Sylvester Graham, a man remembered best now as the inventor of the Graham cracker. Graham came up with his cracker to support the dietary reforms that he advocated, which centered around the eating of whole grains and avoiding morally suspect activities like eating meat and drinking alcohol. So naturally, Greeley was a lifelong vegetarian and teetotaler. Gus Froman, by the way, never touched alcohol either. Looking beyond his personal habits, Greeley's worldview becomes apparent in his deep involvement in certain political parties. Early in his career, Greeley was a prominent member of the Whig Party. Here's Mitchell Snay. Whigs had a very kind of distinctive platform and worldview. The Whigs believed that government had a positive role to play in society. Um, they believed kind of we all are in this together. And we have to help elevate the masses. There was clearly an elitist tend among the Whigs. And that meant support of education. Um, and it also meant they were tended to be more sensitive to the needs of African-Americans and Native Americans. And that's not saying much in the 1830s and 40s, but the idea that kind of in a way we do have to watch out um, for other people. They last until 1852. They are destroyed by the slavery question. You could not keep Southern Whigs and Northern Whigs together, and so the party splits up. Out of the ashes of the Whig Party, Greeley helped create the Republican Party. For the most part, he allies himself with the radicals in the Republican Party. And the radicals are known as the, most, the strongest anti-slavery element. They are the ones during the Civil War who pushed Lincoln to emancipation. Greeley was no doubt a prominent abolitionist but he had a broader identity as a liberal who embraced reforms of all kinds. Adam Max Tuchinsky explains. So what emerges in Greeley and in the Tribune is a kind of modern liberalism as we know it, which is a reform-oriented ideology that is really about trying to kind of create a bit of a safety net uh, for people who are damaged or hurt by you know, forces that are much you know, beyond their own control, but also to kind of use the government to give them some tools to sort of pull themselves out of out of poverty. And, and that involves interventions in the market. Uh, he was an advocate for higher education, and that's where the, you know, public higher ed comes from. Um, he was also someone who advocated his whole career for uh, homesteads. His enthusiasm for homesteads and the Homestead Act that opened public lands to settlers is reflected in the one saying of his that's still remembered, go west, young man. One of Greeley's famous phrases is go west, young man, because he felt that the solution to the urban problems of working class neighborhoods was free land. And Greeley is one of the first to see land as a safety valve that if we can give the workers of New York City land, it will reduce the, the density of population, the suffering. It'll raise wages among the eastern seaboard. 
Maybe the most surprising liberal reform that Greeley embraced was socialism. You know, one of the questions that that's often asked is, um, yeah, how is it that essentially the intellectual founder of the Republican Party was also a socialist who for 10 years, uh, Karl Marx was one of its most important European correspondents. And so uh, and so socialism became kind of the, the core principle of his life because um, he believed uh, it could be kind of the uh, the ladder to kind of lift the uh, kind of increasingly degraded working class out of poverty and into the middle class. But this wasn't the socialism that Marxists would recognize. The kind of socialism that, that Greeley and others advocated wasn't really class conscious in the way that, that Marxist socialism was. It wasn't like a revolutionary movement. It wasn't driven by, you know, factory production. You know, Greeley once said, I don't want workers to um, combat capital. I want them to command capital. So Greeley was actually even opposed to strikes and class conflict and, and kind of wanted a socialism that would restore class harmony by giving everyone kind of a common interest. The question of whether this was socialism at all is not exactly settled. I don't think that you could associate Greeley today with what some people would call socialism. But he really believed, and he often uses the word cooperation, um, that people need to work together. Um, He's strangely, in some ways, a kind of critic of capitalism, but he really kind of embraces it as well. But he really feels that we can, if we, we can live cooperatively as a capitalist society. In 1843, Greeley encountered a movement imported from France that seemed custom-made for him. It was called Fourierism, grounded in the writings of Charles Fourier, a utopian visionary. He believed that there were essentially 810 personality types, and that if you could combine them all together, you could create a kind of a perfect, small utopian community of, of um, you know, 1,600 people or so, and they would live in planned communities called phalanxes. Fourier thought that if you create a society like this on this level of a scale, you know, you could um, uh, reinvest labor with spontaneity and joy, and that it would bring uh, a sort of capital and an economy of scale to a larger uh, proportion of people. Greeley was so taken with Fourierism that he dedicated a column in the Tribune to it and used his own money to help build a phalanx in Red Bank, New Jersey. What Greeley and the early American Fourierists cared about was the organization of labor and the crisis of labor under capitalism. And they were looking for a way to combat excessive individualism and um, inequality and the business cycle and unemployment. Fourierism made a big impression on Greeley. Greeley, in turn, made a huge impression on little Gus Froman. It's no surprise then that Gustav would join a Fourierist project many years later that ultimately would transform his life. I'll look more deeply into American Fourierism in the next episode, but let's first finish up with Greeley, this hugely influential force in both the America of his day and the life of a young German-Jewish kid from Sandusky, Ohio. What, ultimately, did he bring to American culture and society? I think it's a kind of um, optimistic view of human with human freedom at the basis of it, um, which is why he was so against slavery. Um, I think it was a vision that capitalism could continue, but you could um, keep its worst excesses from appearing. 
Um, he believed, I think, in society as, as a kind of organism in which would, would include kind of everybody. Um, so I think what stands out is, to me, something optimistic um, and forward-looking that really represents. You know, sometimes when we think about the, the history of this country, we don't really think of these efforts to address economic inequality as going as deep in our history as it actually does. And I think that's what makes them important. Special thanks to historians Mitchell Snay and Adam Max Tuchinsky, both authors of excellent books on Horace Greeley. Music for A Story Already Begun is by Jim Balabushko Ray. 